I don't know if you have a similar experience, but in, in my experience, <clears throat> in looking at Old Testament passages, I have to kind of take things that are strange to me, that maybe sound a little bit strange to my ear, and, and the effort that I have to put in when I come to the text is to try and make them familiar, so to kind of make them familiar to my ear. I, I kind of have to flip that when I get to the Gospels, and maybe this is the case for you, a text that you've heard a number of times, and it's very familiar to you, and when you come to the text, you sort of have to make it strange again, uh, to kind of rehear it in a way that, um, well, let me give an example. I find uh, uh, switching translations to be very helpful. Um, maybe you have grown up reading the NIV and you would switch a translation when you read, read a, a gospel text and it would sort of bring something new to the surface. Um, but there is really that, kind of that act of making a familiar text strange again that is kind of a necessary process to go through. And that, that's one as, as we approach this text this morning that we might, um, that we might bump up against. But I, find that, I find that helpful we sort of have to rediscover the disruptiveness of a text like this. We could be tempted to look at this text and think, well, of course the disciples are out of their minds, right? This request that they make of Jesus that, as Matt mentioned, sounds a lot like what maybe you have heard from your kids. We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Of course, we could jump in and just say, course this is ridiculous right they sound they do they sound like children here um, this this sounds absurd but think about it in the context of our of our current culture a culture in which um, maybe in your work environment where ambition is rewarded uh, where initiative is sort of a, a, a virtue pulling yourself up by your your bootstraps um, being able to, uh, uh, to approach a superior and, and to show your worth, uh, to sort of climb the ladder through, um, uh, through taking initiative. And we, we see the disciples' request in that light. Here they are, literally breaking away from the other disciples who are following Jesus. And the text immediately before this in Mark 10, 32 says they're afraid and in awe. Maybe the disciples, James and John, see this as their one opportunity to sort of break away. Here's our chance to get in Jesus' ear, to take initiative and say, okay, this is where we capitalize. This is where we want to be uh, uh, making our request, to be seated next to Jesus in his, in his glory. So kind of think about it in those terms. Uh, ambition is rewarded in our current culture. Maybe the disciples' request starts to make a little bit more sense to us in that light. For those of us who, who know this story, then, it may have lost a little bit of its punch in our, in our re-readings of it. You may have heard this story multiple times, and we need to hear this request uh, from the perspective of the disciples. So for whatever reason, they're emboldened to ask what we all might be tempted uh, to ask if we were in their situation, especially if we think, as, as probably they do, that Jesus is headed for an earthly, visible enthronement uh, where he'll, he'll be made king and, and people will be uh, worshiping him and, and drawn to him in a very visible, public way, and he'll be enthroned and he'll overthrow the powers 
If that's the case, the disciples want to be with him in his glory. Now, we have the benefit of, of being able to read after Jesus and to see just how wrong-headed their thinking is, but placing ourselves in, in their position, we might be tempted to, to ask the same thing that they're asking. Does that sort of make sense in this context? Jesus says, if you want to go where I go, can you also do what I do? So in this always frustrating fashion, Jesus answers their question with another question. What is it that you want for me to do to you, for you? Can you drink the cup that I drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And of course, their answer is, maybe rather flippantly, yes, we are able. Uh, if they're headed for earthly glory, of course their answer is going to be yes, no matter what it is. Even if they don't understand what Jesus means by, can you drink this cup? Can you be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? So the disciples, as, as we know, they request the wrong thing. Uh, earthly, visible glory is what they're after. And they request the wrong thing at the wrong time. So they don't understand that suffering and, and hardships have to come first. And thirdly, they, they request it in the wrong way. So they request it alone, isolated, apart from the other ten disciples. And as we'll see, that has some sort of disastrous con consequences in this, in this uh, episode. John Chrysostom, who's the fourth century bishop of Constantinople, sometimes <laughs> in an effort to make the, the familiar strange, it's good to go back and see what other Christians throughout the centuries have said about a text uh, that might inform the way that we read it and add some sort of strangeness to the, the familiarity with sometimes with which we approach a text. But he says this, they, the disciples, thought he was going to his visible kingdom and would rule in Jerusalem. So the sons of Zebedee, James and John, caught up with him on the road. They thought they had found the opportune moment they put their request to him. They had broken away from the throng of disciples and just as if the whole situation had turned out exactly as they had wanted, things are shaping up perfectly for them, they asked about the privilege of the first seats and about being the first among the others. They asked for this because they assumed that everything was finished and the whole business was over and done with. So they think everything has already come to its culmination. Again, it's so hard to hear this as the final word, knowing what we know after Jesus, but they think everything is finished. Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem, and they're going to follow him and sort of bask in the glory that he's about to, to undertake. If the whole thing is drawing to a close and Jesus is determined to get to Jerusalem, this is really the natural time for such a request from the disciples. We look back in Mark chapter 6, verses 21 and 22, and then down in, in verse 25, uh, this episode, um, well, we'll just, we'll read it. It's a little bit hard to set the stage, but it's kind of a bizarre episode. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee, and when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, and the king said to the girl, ask for me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. You hear the resonance there? That same sort of question is asked in Mark 10. 
So he says to the girl, ask for me whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. A little bizarre, right? And in this circumstance in Mark chapter 10, jumping back to the disciples' request, their request, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you, kind of recalls this extravagant promise that Herod made to uh, his daughter. The similarity of these two statements suggests that James and John are speaking kind of in an equally thoughtless and extravagant manner as what's going on in this episode in Mark chapter 6. So in addition to being brash, it's sort of a, sort of a manipulative approach. Um, you have the experience of, of telling someone what you want their response to be before you make the request. I used to think of this as priming the pump when I was a kid. Uh, if I were to ask my parents if I could have somebody over for a sleepover or something, I, I would approach the request like this. I would say, now, mom, you're probably going to say no, but... And of course that puts her in a very weird situation. And my parents weren't in the habit of saying no to me, but if I approached it in this sort of manipulative way, you're getting a glimpse into six-year-old Austin's brain here. You're probably going to say no, but can my friend come over for a sleepover? Um, it's a little bit like someone coming to you and saying, I'm going to tell you something, but you can't get mad. <laughs> well, okay, is that my normal re reaction? You have to sort of prime me for this, uh, what you're about to tell me? So this is a little bit manipulative, right? It sounds, sounds manipulative to our ears. In verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? So first, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And we know, again, reading after Jesus, that this is a reference to Jesus' suffering. So in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And the cup here referring to Jesus' suffering. By the way, in the preschool class, uh, we're talking about the Garden of Gethsemane this morning. I know that because Hillary came to me exasperatedly before the service and said, I thought I had dodged all of the bullets around Easter time, but now I'm having to do the Garden of Gethsemane for our preschoolers, so pray for Hillary. Um, but there's this episode of Jesus saying, take this cup from me. He's referring to his, the suffering that he's about to undergo. So again, in Mark 10, Jesus is talking about suffering. Whether or not the disciples fully grasp this is probably, it's doubtful, right? They, they probably don't understand that he's headed for suffering. They assume that he's headed for glory. Just, they're not going to get what they expect. And the disciples miss the reference. This reference to the cup of, of God's wrath is, is present in our, our Old Testament scriptures as well, in the Psalms and in Isaiah chapter 51. But thinking about the cup the cup of suffering, uh, we receive the Eucharist each, each week here on a Sunday morning. So we think about uh, maybe receiving communion as um, the cup. So we come to the table each week, and it, it reminds us not only that we are the beneficiaries of Christ's suffering, that he purchased our redemption, but also that we are to participate in his suffering. 
I think sometimes it's easy to remember the first part and sort of neglect the second part. And maybe it would give us a little bit of pause in coming forward to receive the Eucharist if we were to remember we're not only coming as beneficiaries, being invited to the table by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but we're also coming forward to share in the sufferings of, of Christ. That's really what's going on here uh, in communion. Or, or the second part of Jesus' question, are you able to experience the baptism with which I am baptized? Again, this is a reference to Jesus' suffering and death. So how interesting that, that Jesus uses two, um, two, what would become sacraments in, in the early church, um, baptism and, and the Eucharist, to talk about his own suffering. We need to sort of reframe the way that we think about the ways that we experience uh, our own baptism and, and we receive communion as um, really an invitation not just to joy and to new life and to entrance into the community, but also entrance into suffering. And those aren't two different things, right? Entering into a community, entering, entering into the body of believers really is an entrance into uh, sharing in one another's sufferings. So if you're, if you're not in the habit, this is something that... Um, just a frame of, of mind that I have developed, and I don't know if it, I don't know what it is, but uh, each time I sort of approach the table, um, I, I have a tendency to think, uh, who is not in the room today? Uh, who, who am I sharing life with? Who is a part of our community? Who is going through suffering today? And I would encourage you, if, if you don't have those sorts of relationships where you're not rubbing shoulders with people in our community enough to know that they're going through suffering, I would encourage you to, to enter in and to engage in that way. And to think about when we approach the table that we're not just approaching it and receiving something for ourselves, although that is very much the case, but we're also in, in a lot of ways receiving it for others or on behalf of others. So these two sacraments, baptism and communion, mark the life of a believer. There's something offered to us, but there's also something that is required of us. It's easy to forget that second piece. It's a movement outward. It's an acceptance of vulnerability. It's an acknowledgement that is uh, what's required of us in living the Christian life will and should run counter to the dominant cultural narratives that we're bombarded with from day to day. Narratives like self-sufficiency, and uh, overconsumption and individualism. So when we approach the table, we're invited to the table of the Lord to be made whole together, but that invitation is simultaneously, again, a call to open ourselves to suffering. And if it's not our own suffering, it's, it can be the sufferings of others. I so appreciated what Kevin shared a couple of weeks ago from, from the front. Those of you who were here might remember uh, Kevin's once yearly uh, time speaking from the front, but it, it was so powerful just talking about what their sort of goals are as uh, those who, who lead in music and in worship. The first was, and I, I will always remember these probably, but to create a sense of timelessness, which they do such a wonderful job of, but to, to choose songs that kind of span the, the breadth of human emotion so that on mornings where they come feeling joyful, we're also singing songs about um, weeping tears and having tears as our only food because there are people even though the musicians may not be feeling those emotions who have that as their reality as they step through the doors 
or on mornings where <laughs> they feel like tears are their only food, choosing songs in which joy is expressed and, and, and a worshipful atmosphere is created and, and, and knowing that there are people who are celebrating, who are coming through the doors in a celebratory mood. Songs that span the breadth of human emotion. It's easy to lose sight that each time we're together, there are those who call Solid Rock home who are either in our midst or uh, uh, scattered throughout our city who are bearing the weight of suffering. And sometimes that load can be suffocating. So if we were to adopt an attitude of mind and heart of approaching the table on behalf of those who would but are unable to approach the table, maybe think about that as, as we prepare for, for communion this morning. So disciples make the wrong request, and that's made clear in Jesus' response. They also request this at the wrong time. So John Chrysostom again says, the timing of their request is precisely wrong, for this was not the right time for crowns or prizes. It was the time for struggles, contests, toils, sweat, wrestling rings, and battles. So again, Jesus' response in Mark chapter 10, verse 40 but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is, the, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So later in Mark's gospel, we're kind of slapped in the face with the irony of their request. Can we sit at your right hand and your left in your glory? And in Mark chapter 15, verse 27, we have Jesus' enthronement, which we know is on the cross, Mark chapter 15, verse 27 says, And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. So Mark uses identical phrasing here, sort of to smack his readers over the head, that the persons by Jesus' right and left are two crucified robbers. So if ever there was an enthronement for the Messiah in Mark's gospel, it's alongside these two robbers. If ever there were companions sharing in Jesus' enthronement and his glory, it was these two crucified robbers, not the two disciples who had been following Jesus. Sort of turns everything on its head. And the images that Jesus uses, again, of, of baptism and communion, they're appropriate for the church in Mark's time, for the church in the first century, where uh, joining the Christian community or participating in Christian worship really did mean risking torture and death. So they would understand, perhaps, these images of suffering in a, in a, in a fresh way. If, if all of this isn't quite connecting, maybe, maybe we can offer one more, one more picture. So let's go back to the image of baptism. Jesus' question, are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? There's a, a theologian whose name is Bob Eckblad, and he compares Jesus' baptism with, and we're going to jump back here to the, the Old Testament, to, to Israel's passage through the Red Sea. So unlike Israel, Eckblad says, Jesus does not pass through on dry ground, but is immersed that he might share the fate of sinners and so rescue them. So think about the Egyptians following Israel through the Red Sea, and it's Jesus not passing through with Israel, but being submerged 
along with the Egyptian chariots. His baptism is an immersion in their suffering and in their sin, in their punishment, that he might bring forth new life for them. So we might be tempted to see Jesus crossing through on dry ground, and certainly, perhaps we could say, Jesus leading Israel in some mysterious way. But if we're to locate Jesus in that story, perhaps in his baptism, it's being washed over by the waters of the Red Sea, that he might even accomplish redemption for those who have pursued and and persecuted the children of God. I don't know if that helps at all, but I, I found that to be a striking image. Ekblad goes on to say, Jesus' baptism and the New Testament teaching on baptism is nothing less than a call for all future followers of Jesus to join in the fate of the enemies of God's kingdom, the quote-unquote them that we may deem worthy of exclusion, punishment, or death. So when we see suffering and sin, if we've been properly formed, our response to suffering and sin is not withdrawal, it's immersion. It's training us to dive in to the depths of that suffering. Not that we go searching it out, but that when it does present itself, we're trained, formed in a way that we can dive into that suffering in order that we might bring Christ into that situation. Does that sort of make sense? It's not an easy truth. If baptism is entrance into a community, it's also preparation for immersion in the suffering of those whom we're called to serve. So in Jesus' statement, the cup I drink, you will drink, it is also a a promise not only to the disciples, but it's a promise to us that we'll undergo suffering as his followers. So the disciples make the wrong request, they make it at the wrong time, and finally they make it in the wrong way. And this is maybe the most subtle of their errors, but it's perhaps the most crucial. Mark 10, 32, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. So the disciples run to catch up to Jesus and they make this request. And and we find out in Mark chapter 10, verse 41, that it has sort of disastrous effects. When the 10 heard it, those who were falling behind, they began to be indignant at James and John And Jesus uses this as a teaching moment. So Jesus calls them to him, Mark 10, verse 42. And Jesus knows full well at this point that his glory will come through suffering. There must be some part of him that wants his companions by his side to ease his suffering. So the very thing they're unknowingly asking for, he probably wants, right? His companions beside him when he suffers. But the cup he drinks and the baptism with which he's baptized, his suffering is one that he alone can endure. So I think verse 42 in this passage is easy to overlook. Jesus called them to him, but it's a very important one. He he calls them all together. And I like what the the British, British theologian Leslie Newbegin says. He says, none of us can be made whole until we're made whole together. None of us can be made whole until we're made whole together. So Jesus calls his disciples to him. This moment of conflict that could erupt, this moment of dissension that could arise as a result of this sort of thoughtless request, Jesus dispels by bringing everyone together and using this as a teaching moment. So musicians, if you'd come, I've completely lost track of time. Are we okay? All right. I just want to make a couple of observations on, uh, on serving one another as we 
as we come to the table. I think service and uh, connection, relational connection, go hand in hand. I don't really know why this is true, but it, it so often is. If, if we give ourselves alongside others, we give of ourselves alongside others, it becomes increasingly difficult to quarrel with one another. Um, serving together is not a surefire way to avoid conflict. Any of you who have been involved in a, in a group project in school <laughs> know that this is true. The second that somebody doesn't pull their weight, right, there's conflict that can erupt. So it's not always the case that, that engaging in a project together can help us grow together. But there, there is a sense in which um, conflict can grow and fester when we don't have anything to do. Any parents of multiple children know that this can be true, right? When boredom arises, that's a time for conflict to also rear its head. So a couple of things on, on service. First of all, service is perhaps best when it is hidden, when it's in secret. Some of us have been the beneficiaries of hidden service, something done for you or, or for your family that is in secret. Maybe somebody has done something anonymously for you and, and you're sort of put in this position of just complete powerlessness where all you can do is express gratitude. So hidden service has a way of, of disarming conflict and, and bringing wholeness and unity. Um, I like the way that um, Richard Foster says it in, in his book, Celebration of Discipline. He says, self-righteous service fractures community. In the final analysis, once all the religious trappings are removed, it centers in the glorification of the individual. So think about the disciples' request. I'm gonna sit next to you in your glory. Therefore, it puts others into its debt and becomes one of the most subtle and destructive forms of manipulation known. True service, on the other hand, he says, builds community. He goes on to say, nothing disciplines the inordinate desires of the flesh like service. And nothing transforms the desires of the flesh like serving in hiddenness. And you might, might be tempted to say, how can hidden service build community? Isn't it just sort of another way of hiding or isolation? Well, first of all, I, I don't think that's the case. Um, think about uh, giving your generosity, often it's in secret. As Jesus instructs, when you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. That's often uh, a way of, of serving in, in hiddenness that has, the way of, of, has a way of building up the community, so enhancing our, our mission as, uh, as a community. And secondly, um, I think not only is serving in hiddenness important, but sorry I called you up here so early, you just have to stand there serving in an observable way is also important. So Jesus' example of washing the disciples' feet is probably the, the best example that we have, and it's one that we're instructed to follow. I don't know if you've noticed, but, but we're all sort of being watched in here on, on Sunday mornings, especially during our, our music time. I have this image burned into my memory. I was standing back in the, in the sound booth one morning, and one of our kids, um, as is often the case, you have a child holding a child, and they're looking behind you while you're looking forward. So you have no idea what's going on, the facial expressions or the interactions that are going on. Um, but I had the benefit of, of standing in the back one morning and seeing um, somebody in the church raising their hands, entering into worship. 
and the, the child who was on, on the back of, uh, uh, of a parent just staring intently at this person who's entering into worship. We're being watched. So the ways that we serve, especially when there are little eyes watching, and if you haven't noticed, there are a lot of little eyes <laughs> in the congregation, but there are little eyes watching, and, and, and the ways that we serve, serving in hiddenness is good, but serving in observable ways is equally as important. I recently heard somebody say, if, if, if my kids can't see it, it's not real. Think about that. If my kids can't see it, it's not real. So we may not talk about this enough, but we're all being watched. If we claim to follow Jesus as a family, Hillary and I, and, and my actions uh, my way of speaking, my, my views about money, my approach to relationships, if, if they aren't different than uh, the rest of the culture, that's something that my, my kids will pick up on. Same, same goes, the opposite is true, right? If, if there's something discernibly different, I think my kids will, will pick up on that as they watch, as they uh, observe the way that, that we live, the way that we steward our finances, the way that we um, love others, the way that we live open-handedly. These are ways of, of serving that are observable and equally as important. I better quit. We're going to receive communion this morning in a little bit different way. Matt, if you'd come, uh, rather than having everybody uh, come forward and receive the elements, instead we'll um, just pass the elements and um, receive them on our own. But I want you to think about, as we, as we pass the, the elements, passing it to maybe family members or, or friends on, on, um, on either side of you. Uh, we're passing it as a community. We're receiving something not only from Jesus, but there's also something that's required of us to pass on. And we are passing on the cup of suffering. We're also receiving this cup of suffering.